The Daily 202 is supported by the Showtime docuseries, The Circus. Get a different perspective on the 2020 presidential campaign from hosts John Heilman, Alex Wagner, and Mark McKinnon as they go behind the scenes and beyond the headlines of the most important story of our time. Don't miss The Circus, Sundays at 8 p.m., only on Showtime. Good morning from Concord, New Hampshire. Yes, I'm still here. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, February 13th. In today's news, President Trump's former chief of staff defends Alexander Vindman. Trump attacks another federal judge ahead of Roger Stone's sentencing. And most cases of the coronavirus are fairly mild, which is good news, but also complicates the response. First, though, the big idea. Usually, the early Democratic presidential contests shrink the field. This year, they've expanded it. The race is bursting out of New Hampshire into a new and highly unusual phase, with at least a half dozen viable candidates, each facing an unpredictable path and major hurdles to overcome. No one has a clear advantage on the road to winning the 1,990 delegates required to secure the nomination this summer at the convention in Milwaukee, and nearly all of them have struggled to appeal to crucial black and Hispanic voters as the campaign now turns to more diverse states. Bernie Sanders hasn't shown he can attract a base broader than a quarter of the party's voters, even in New Hampshire, where in victory he was unable to retain even half the vote share he won four years ago. Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar have enjoyed sudden spurts, but have yet to demonstrate whether they can grow beyond their base of mostly white, college-educated voters. Joe Biden, who placed a dismal fifth here, flew back home to Wilmington, Delaware on Wednesday after his rally in South Carolina and held a call with major donors to try to calm nerves and fill a depleted campaign account. The fourth-place finisher, Elizabeth Warren, spoke via phone to rally her team yesterday, but she's also now canceled hundreds of thousands of dollars in reservations to air television ads in Nevada and South Carolina starting next week. Three candidates with little support have dropped out since Tuesday, Andrew Yang, Michael Bennett, and then Deval Patrick. But the Iowa and New Hampshire results have given more of the remaining candidates reasons to stay in the race in which the unwieldy field has worked against any individual effort to coalesce broader support. And another sign of the turbulence engulfing this contest Troy Price, chairman of the Iowa Democratic Party, announced last night that he will resign. It's the latest fallout from last week's botched caucuses in the Hawkeye State, which resulted in delayed results. And even Steve Martin was making fun of Iowa during the Oscars. The AP still hasn't even officially called the caucuses. Looming over the upcoming South Carolina primary is billionaire Tom Steyer, who has spent freely to try to build support among black voters who previously backed Biden. Former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg's deep-pocketed campaign will figure even more prominently when he begins appearing on ballots starting March 3rd, Super Tuesday, when 14 states, including California and Texas, vote. So far, the way that candidates have gained traction in this race has been to attract a narrow slice of the electorate. Warren, for example, spent the past several weeks attempting to cast herself as a unity candidate, but saw herself overtaken by Sanders, who made a more forthright appeal to liberals a more defined niche. Adding to the muddle is the uncertainty evinced by the voters themselves. Half of New Hampshire's voters on Tuesday said they decided whom to support in the last few days before the primary. About a third of Iowa's voters said the same. 
Sanders yesterday made no attempt to expand his ideological reach. When asked if there are any lessons in the fact that he and Warren received fewer votes combined than the moderates in the party, his campaign co-chair Nina Turner was blunt. The lesson to be learned, she said, is he won and they lost. Sanders is already tussling with the culinary union, the largest union in Nevada, and one whose members, mostly Latino and female, typically play a pivotal role in the Silver State's caucuses. The union on Tuesday night, as Bernie was delivering his victory speech, distributed flyers criticizing his Medicare for All plan, saying it would dilute the health care plans that the union has negotiated for its members in negotiations. The Sanders campaign countered with a statement, noting that he's joined unions on picket lines and saying his plan is as comprehensive or more so than the health care benefits that union workers currently receive. But then later in the day, the union, which has yet to make its coveted endorsement, which isn't going to go to Sanders, escalated the growing feud by releasing a statement of its own criticizing Sanders for his supporters, who the union claimed have been critical of union officials on Twitter and in hate-filled phone calls. Those in the party who were nervous about Sanders' rise, the people in the middle, took some comfort that voters are backing moderate candidates when you put it together in an aggregate way. But that was mixed in with growing anxiety that Sanders could still prove a durable force as he dominates on the left and the moderates show no signs of coalescing. Buttigieg announced that he is doubling his Nevada staff and his South Carolina team has already swelled to 55 people. Last night, he announced the endorsement of J.A. Moore, a South Carolina state representative who had previously backed Kamala Harris. Buttigieg also unveiled the support of Walter Clyburn Reed, the grandson of South Carolina kingmaker Jim Clyburn, the congressman who hasn't endorsed in the race. Klobuchar, who raised as much in the three hours after polls closed on Tuesday night as she raised in any single month last year, has rolled out a seven-figure ad buy starting today in Nevada and plans to arrive in the state for events starting this afternoon. Tonight, there's a LULAC, Latino-focused forum that four of the candidates will speak at. Biden asked donors on that conference call yesterday afternoon to be patient. They said that the race is just beginning. He noted a fact that he's been taking solace in over the past few days. Bill Clinton won only one of the first 11 contests in 1992 before going on to claim the nomination. Biden said on the call that Bloomberg and Klobuchar are untested and will face more scrutiny in the coming days. Indeed, there are some stories out today that appear to be opposition research uh, against Biden's opponents. Biden has several fundraisers scheduled for today in New York, as well as one next week in Los Angeles. The campaign hopes to regroup in Nevada and amid a shakeup of its advisors has brought in a prominent new Democratic consultant to help. We're told that Jen O'Malley Dillon, a top Obama campaign aide who ran Beto O'Rourke's presidential campaign until he dropped out, is now working for Biden on a volunteer basis. But some other Biden advisors tell us privately that they're hoping for even a third place finish in Nevada and that his organization is unlikely to match that of his rivals, especially because it's a caucus state where ground game helps more. The Biden campaign is also starting to pay more attention to Bloomberg because it views him as an increasing threat to take away Biden's support in the black community. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, speaking last night in New Jersey at Drew University, Former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly defended Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, 
the ousted National Security Council aide who testified against Trump during the impeachment inquiry. Kelly, a retired Marine Corps general, said Vindman is blameless and was simply following the training he's received as a soldier. Kelly said Vindman was rightly disturbed by the July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Having seen something questionable, Kelly says someone in Vindman's position is supposed to notify his superiors. According to an Atlantic write-up of the 75-minute appearance, which included Q&A, Kelly contrasted Vindman, who he called a hero, to Eddie Gallagher. Kelly slammed the president for intervening in the case of the Navy SEAL, who was convicted last year of posing with the corpse of an ISIS fighter. Trump reversed a Navy decision to oust Gallagher in a chain of events that led to the ouster of Navy Secretary Richard Spencer. Kelly said the commander-in-chief intervening over the objections of the head of the Navy and the Special Operations Command was, quote, exactly the wrong thing to do. Kelly added that he thinks if he was still in the White House, he could have prevented it from happening. Number two, in the span of 48 hours this week, the president has sought to protect his friends and punish his foes, even at the risk of compromising the Justice Department's independence and integrity. Trump complained publicly about federal prosecutors recommending a hard prison sentence for his longtime friend and confidant, Roger Stone. Then he sought to intimidate the federal judge in the Stone case, badgering her repeatedly on Twitter for previous rulings and issuing vaguely ominous warnings. Then he floated the possibility of a presidential pardon for Stone if she gives him a tough sentence. This isn't how the rule of law is supposed to work. Some of Trump's own top aides have counseled him against speaking out on legal matters, warning him that doing so could wrongly influence proceedings because officials at DOJ and elsewhere would then know they needed to please him or risk his wrath. Trump has often responded, according to a former senior administration official, and this is a direct quote, I have a right to say whatever I want. I have a right to say whatever I want. Trump insisted yesterday that he did nothing improper by getting involved in the Stone case. Still, a chorus of former U.S. attorneys and former Justice Department leaders of both parties condemned this president for what they consider improper political pressure in a criminal prosecution. Meanwhile, Attorney General Bill Barr faces growing scrutiny over his intervention in the Stone case. Trump put him squarely in the middle of the controversy by tweeting publicly yesterday that Barr was doing a great job by seizing command of the case from career prosecutors. The top Democrat in the Senate called for the Justice Department's Inspector General to launch an investigation of this stone Donnybrook, and the House Judiciary Committee announced it will have Barr testify on March 31st to address this and other troublesome cases. Number three. The number of reported cases of the coronavirus has jumped dramatically after China decided to expand its criteria for diagnosis. The official death toll of the pneumonia-like virus, which is now officially being called COVID-19, has risen to 1,367, nearly all in China. The total confirmed cases worldwide have surpassed 60,000. Chinese national health authorities issued revised guidelines yesterday to now count clinically diagnosed coronavirus cases in the confirmed total. Previously, Chinese officials were only counting cases that had been confirmed by nucleic acid tests, which critics said were faulty and greatly underestimated the true magnitude of this epidemic. Still, the dramatic jump confirms longtime suspicions that China has been vastly undercounting the cases. 
So far, and this is really interesting, 82% of coronavirus cases, including all 14 here in the United States, have been mild with symptoms that require little to no medical intervention. Health authorities managing the outbreak are trying to understand what that critical fact portends, that four in five people who get coronavirus have mild symptoms. The fact that there are so many cases like this is a hallmark of the disease that makes it very different from SARS, the outbreak that was a coronavirus 20 years ago. Jennifer Nuzo, an epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins, says it's really challenging because most of their surveillance to try to detect the coronavirus is oriented around finding people who require immediate medical intervention. The other problem is that people with mild symptoms can pass the virus along to other people who might have much more severe symptoms. That makes it harder to win the fight against COVID-19. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, February 13th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.